everyone, and welcome back to the Faculty of Horror, podcasting from the horrid halls of academia. I'm Alex West with... Andrea Subasati. And we are back with our June episode. And today we are discussing, I guess, a kind of contentious film. We're discussing Michael Haneke's 1997 film, Bunny Games. And Andrea, this was this was a big choice from you. It was a big choice. It was a big choice. We've been talking about wanting to do this one for a while and you were, you were pretty excited about this one and we just kind of had this gap in our programming. So we decided to go for it. So why funny games? Uh, I love this film. I love things that are surreal and I love things that break the rules. And we're going to get into that in, in some great detail, but. There's also this TV show that I love called 12 Ounce Mouse. Have I ever talked to you about this show? No. It's a super surreal animated TV show that aired on Adult Swim like, I don't know, like 10 years ago, I think. I think I was still living in Ottawa when I discovered it. And the dialogue is so non sequitur that when you're watching it, it almost hurts, but it also tickles me. And I think I think part of that comes from the reason I gravitate toward horror is because I don't like being talked down to and I don't like being patronized. I like seeing a lot of rules broken, but shows like 12 Ounce Mouse and movies like Funny Games break the rules to a way greater extent. And I find it, it can be frustrating, but I even find that frustration really refreshing and really fun. And I think it's one of those films that if you are like Andrea and kind of can get on that train and enjoy this version of it, it's a really entertaining experience. And I think there's uh, this is one of those films that you really swing the pendulum on mm-hmm. um, as a viewer. And I think I, I personally swing a little bit the other way, um, whereas I don't I'm not able to dial into this film as much. Mm-hmm. I can kind of understand what's going on in it. But it's uh, it's one of those ones that's always kind of eluded me as to its fandom. But all that to say, it's been really interesting kind of digging into some of the themes that are presented within this film and uh, starting to open up a discussion about it. And that's, you know, that's why we do this. You know, uh, as we always say, liking or disliking a film is entirely subjective. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's not something I personally like to waste a lot of energy on. But I am always interested in what a film or a piece of art has to say about the world around it. And I think Funny Games has a shit ton to say about the world that it's made of and the world it creates. That's right. It has a shit ton to say, but it doesn't say it. And it dares you to say it. And at the same time, challenging you to make sense of something that it deliberately presents in a nonsensical way, which I think it's really fun to kind of step back and take a look at in the abstract. Also, I don't think we're going to really get into the differences. There aren't any differences between the original and the remake. So we are going to be focusing our discussion on the 1997 original, which is filmed in Austrian. And there is an American remake 10 years later, made by the same filmmaker with the exact same dialogue. It is a shot-for-shot remake, uh, even down to the soundtrack, even down to the really experimental punk that permeates the film, which is pretty much the only music that permeates the film. It's the exact same track as the original film. So I don't think there's much to compare to you. No, I think maybe we'll touch on it at the end. But ultimately, I think, you know, horror lives in its best self when it's closest to home. 
And I think the original Funny Games strikes quite a few parallels to Haneke and his upbringing and whether he wants to admit it or not. Uh, and he's also quite an elusive director in terms of how he likes to speak about his films. And we'll get into that later on. Right on. Well, let's do it. 1997's Funny Games. Austrian couple Georg and Anna have just arrived at their summer cottage with their young son. On the way, they pause to say hello to their neighbor Fred, who introduces them to his two young male guests, Peter and Paul. As Georg and Anna settle in, Peter arrives at the door and asks to borrow some eggs. He breaks them, and while he waits for more, he knocks their cordless phone into the dishwater, breaking it. As Anna becomes increasingly exasperated, Paul arrives and asks to borrow Georg's golf club for a bit. Eventually, the young men overstay their welcome, and Anna asks them to leave. By the time Georg finds them, Anna furiously insists that he throw them out, but she has a hard time articulating why they've made her so mad. Paul breaks Georg's leg with a golf club, and the couple begin to understand that their guests aren't going anywhere. Paul and Peter claim that they're going to play some games with the family, and bets that they won't survive the next 12 hours. They proceed to slowly torment the family with intimidation and violence, culminating in the murder of all three before moving on to the next house on the bay. So it's actually quite a straightforward film in many ways. And in many ways. I remember the first time I really sat down to watch it, I was actually quite shocked at how straightforward it was. When was that? Um, I saw. I actually saw the remake first. Okay. Uh, and then I really only watched the original for this. Okay. And the points that kind of punctuate this film and allow it to kind of have 
let's say, a higher discourse than maybe some other films of this ilk is all the nods, all the cues to uh, particularly Peter and Paul understanding that this is a film. Mm -hmm. They talk about the conventions. They talk uh, to the camera. There's a lot of breaking the fourth wall and forcing the audience to understand that we are watching a film. So really, Peter and Paul are the ones to punctuate, break, mock the fourth wall that exists between the events of the film, the cinema screen, and the audience watching it. And to me, that's where some of the interesting elements of this film come alive. Mm-hmm. Well, it's actually just Paul. Oh, right. I might add. I yeah, don't it is think just Paul. it's significant, but... Well, maybe uh, you as the good Catholic girl can enlighten us as to the importance of the names Peter and Paul. Nope. Because <laughs> uh, I had to Google it, and so there were, uh, they were apostles of Jesus. Yeah, I think uh, they were apostles, which is to say they were they were like among his inner circle who wrote gospels. I think I think that's what gives you the title of apostle. Um, I think Paul was the Baptist, so he had a special role in that respect. But I didn't actually look into it. Yeah, I I think Haneke. The sense I get from him is that he's a bit of a trickster and he just kind of likes to fuck with people. Yeah. And I, I I definitely get the sense that there is a uh, really strong middle finger to the bourgeoisie, uh-huh. um, this kind of encased, enclosed, cloistered, upper middle class family or this way of life that does not know how to respond to other people coming into it. Right. And I think, you know, he kind of puts in all these little nods to things like Peter and Paul that just kind of don't actually have very much significance that I was able to kind of grab onto. But it's this fleeting moment of like, oh, those two names and those two names together. Yeah, yeah. this is going to come into play, but they're breadcrumbs to nowhere. Yeah. And I agree with you. I definitely think I'm not super familiar with the rest of his work. I'm sorry to say I might might seek it out after this, but um He wanted to make the film very violent, but he also wanted to make it very pointless. And he wrote an essay called Violence in Media, which appears in a book called A Companion to Michael Haneke. And this guy's really educated. He actually attended university to study philosophy, psychology, and drama. He worked as a film critic for many years. So he's... He knows what he's doing, I'll put it that way. And I have a quote about this film that I thought was really interesting, especially for our purposes. My films are intended as polemical statements against the American barrel-down cinema and its disempowerment of the spectator. They are an appeal for a cinema of insistent questions instead of false answers, for clarifying distance in place of violating closeness, for provocation and dialogue instead of consumption and consensus. And when I read that, I almost like, got up in my chair and applauded because it pretty much encapsulates the mandate for this podcast, which is something that we have been called upon to defend again and again for the past five years. Recently on Twitter of somebody being like, oh, God, George Romero would be spinning in his grave if he heard what you said, all this stuff that you imposed upon his work. It's like, no, it doesn't work that way. So for Haneke to be so cognizant of that and then yet feed us a film that we can't sink our teeth into for something such as this podcast, I, I think is really delicious. Yeah, it's um, it's definitely something that, as I was thinking about it and reading a little bit about this film, it reminded me of this playwright that I had to study a lot in theater school. And quite frankly, the parallels feel so obvious that I would 
absolutely not be shocked if um, this guy comes up in studies of Haneke. And it's uh, another German playwright, uh, another German um, theater practitioner by the name of Bertolt Brecht. And uh, he was really operational in Europe and a bit in America in the first half of the 20th century. And he was German and he fled Germany during the rise of Nazism. And he did all these strange things like uh, epic theater and, and all of this theater that served to distance its audience from the proceedings. Um, it was kind of the antithesis of the well-made theater, the, the well-told story, the one that had a first act, a second act, a third act. You had a moral resolution. You had all of the traditional things that play in a story should have. And Brecht believed that theater shouldn't evoke an emotional or identifiable response. It should provoke introspection and a critical and maybe even dispassionate view on the events occurring on stage, thereby putting the onus on the spectator. And Brecht was a Marxist and he was pretty political. Maybe again, one of the reasons why he fled Nazism, mm -hmm. but he believed that the play is a representation of reality, not reality itself, which well, duh. But by drawing attention to theatrical constructs, Brecht hoped to illuminate the ways in which real life is constructed and controlled. Okay. And I, I, I don't even know if I fully ever want, finished one of his plays. They're quite impenetrable. I've seen production of his plays. They're also just, they're not my cup of tea, but I love his ideology. Mm -hmm. I think that's kind of where I fall with Haneke as well. Right. Um, and I think by confronting an audience, especially a, you know, supposedly rapt audience, whether you're in the dark of a theater, the dark of a movie theater, watching something in your home, you're paying attention to it. Your attention should probably be focused on that thing. And uh, you are forced to reconcile with it. And all the trappings of a well-made film, let's say, are performances that live and exist in a world of this film. The world of this film is constructed by the production design, the music, everything that is to transport you from the actual life you're in to another world. And theater, while it has more constructs around it, like it's way more obvious you're watching people on stage pretending mm -hmm. uh, to a certain degree. I think we're much more you know, used to in the 21st century having an experience with film or television. There is a sense that when you're confronted with something that shows you the like uh, the seams yeah. of it so to speak you you don't get to sit back and enjoy it you are kind of constantly forced out of it you're forced out of your sitting back and letting something wash over you to begin to question what you're actually watching That's and right. yeah. it's it's quite a complicated thing to do as an audience member and oftentimes I think films like this plays like Brecht's and all of the people Brecht was influenced by and has gone on to influence like they tend to piss a lot of audiences off mm -hmm. because people either don't understand what they're signing up for or they get there and they don't like it. Right. And that's fair just because it's it's so disorienting and it's disorienting because it's so unreal. It's so surreal. But I was thinking about Hereditary and I know our listeners are aware of Hereditary and are dying for us to talk about Hereditary. As usual, we're going to give it a little bit of breathing room before we tackle it. We're still unpacking it ourselves mm -hmm. because it's tremendous. But did you not find that in Hereditary, there were scenes that were so realistic, they were uncinematic? Yes. Like in particular, and I, I hate to 
go into any detail whatsoever short of doing a full-on episode, but there's a dinner table scene mm-hmm. that is so tremendously accessible, and yet it felt surreal in that I had never seen it displayed so realistically in cinema before. So there's an aspect of cinema verite that is so real that it's uncinematic, and then Funny Games kind of presents the other side of that. And to me, that just really exposes the seams, as you say. It exposes the fact that cinema and TV and drama have just been building on itself so much to the point that it's unreal. Mm -hmm. And we can't even expect reality from it. It has its own conventions that are so deeply ingrained in it. And now at this point in history, we've just stood on the shoulders of giants to the point that it's unrecognizable and unreconcilable from reality. Well, and if you think about, you know, the great grand scheme of the history of the world and the history of humanity, and just over a 100 years ago, you had people in a cinema running out of a cinema because they thought the train that was coming towards them on the screen was actually going to run them over. How true that is or not. I think when you think of it within that context, a film that deals with violence, with intimate ties, with uh, un intimate ties, let's say, Mm -hmm. and that constantly looks back at you and says, all right, what are you going to do? What about this now? Mm -hmm. Watching Funny Games, it made me think about this conversation I've been seeing happening quite a bit on on social media, in media, frankly, about the rash of uh, gun violence happening in the States, especially school shootings, Uh and people becoming dispassionate, downtrodden, angry, apathetic about it to the point where you're hearing about it so often it almost doesn't resonate with you. Like I I remember um, I was, I think I was just, I was at the end of grade eight when Columbine happened and that truly struck fear into the hearts and minds of people Um, all over the world. I remember how scared my mother was when there was a shooting at the Ecole Polytechnique in Montreal, I believe Mm -hmm. it was in 1989. And uh, those things had such resonance and there was space around them and people were like, why does this happen? And, and, and now it just seems to happen bi-weekly. Right. And, and how do you care that much? How can you put yourself out there to care? What can we do? And I, I think we risk apathy. And, and I think that's what Funny Games does. And it, it confronts us with violence. Mm-hmm. And it confronts us, for me personally, violence to the point of boredom. Mm-hmm. And it's like... Jesus, you know, as horror fans, we consider ourselves thrill seekers and this, that and the other. But when confronted with sustained violence and the physical pain of violence that you're viewing on screen and you're bored, that's like I had to sit with that for a few days and just go, oh, that's fucked up. Right. Well, Funny Games takes its fucking time. Oh, yeah. Like there are plenty of very violent movies out there that aren't at all boring. And it's just kind of an an exhausting assault of the senses nonstop, whereas funny games, a lot of the actual violence is implied and off-screen, but it is still really violent. Notably, the only actual gore is when Peter takes a shotgun to the chest, and that is one of the instances where Paul breaks the fourth wall and is like, no, you can't mm-hmm. do that. Not in my story. Yeah. Not in the way that I've done this. And so he rewinds it, and we're going to come back to that scene a little bit later, but that is the only incident where you really see something make contact and the blood fly like that, mm-hmm. which I think was uh, was a conspicuous thing. Well, and I think it's interesting about funny games is that as a viewer, you're kind of meant to or you expect yourself to align with the family. 
Yes. They are fine people. They don't seem that offensive, but they're probably kind of boring. Whatever. We're sp- supposed to align with them. But Andrea, to your point, as you were just saying, we don't get to see the violence that is inflicted on them very directly. Like the son's death happens off screen. Mm-hmm. So the camera constantly aligns with Peter and Paul. Mm-hmm. And again, the, the gaze, the direction of the camera, as we talked about, indicates who the audience is supposed to align to. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it can be small things. For an instance, if uh, you know, you're watching a film and a character has a lingering shot looking after um, an area where another character stood. It's implied that that character has feelings for another character. Right. Uh, we're triggering all these little clues to this other character's uh, inner life. And in this film, we're, we're aligning with the psychopaths who have no motive where their motive constantly changes. That's right. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up because I was trying to think of other instances of breaking of the fourth wall in horror. And of course, I think of stuff like Zombieland. Mm -hmm. I think of stuff where these are the rules of the zombie movie. And they come out and they're so formulaic and we know them already. You have to have cardio. You have to double tap. You have to get them in the head. Like we know this already. And it fosters this sense of familiarity. And it's always with the protagonist that you're meant to sympathize with. So the fact that the breaker of the fourth wall in this film is always Paul, who is perhaps the most emotionally and psychologically inaccessible character in this whole film, uh, even more so than Peter, I dare say. He's always the one doing it. And further to that, I was thinking about everything that we talked about last episode with regard to voyeurism Mm. and about all the different ways that Peeping Tom and Psycho kind of impose their gaze on us as we're seeing through the Psycho's eyes and the depiction of voyeurism and voyeurism within voyeurism. But I felt like Funny Games, this breaking of the fourth wall with Paul was more violating to me than any other depiction of forced POV I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. I read this in a couple places when I was reading a bit about Haneke. Um, and so he's he's German, and I uh, was born in 1942 in Germany. Um, She's not even looking at her notes. How did you remember that? Because it's so interesting. Okay. Well, it's mid-World War II. Okay. And maybe I also find it interesting because my father was born in 1944 in England, and his childhood was really in the shadow of World War II and rationing and, and like the rebuilding of a country and the borrowing money and this, that, and the other and how England tried to come back and was really decimated after it. Mm. And so people have talked about Haneke. And again, everything I've read about Haneke and his uh, interviews and, and things like that, he's he's very evasive. He kind of gives pat answers and you're like, no, there's more to this. You don't just don't want to fucking answer it. That's fine. Because again, I think he wants to force the answers from us. When you think of Germany and in a post-World War II society, there was so much wanting to forget. And and I wrote about this quite extensively in my uh, first book on New French Extremity, the French experience of needing to forget. There is so much strife and fear and resentment and anger and poverty and things that were coming from a war that some people had something to do with and some didn't. And one of the things to kind of arise out of a society like that, and even prior to that, is the notion of propaganda films. Mm. And uh, a lot of film critics have toyed with the notion of how propaganda films feed into Haneke's oeuvre. So maybe that's why he has such a, like, fuck you to the traditional filmmaking styles. Like, I was reading a statistic that in his films, and he's got quite a few, in nine of his films, there is a main couple that have the names Anna and George. 
No kidding. Yeah. So that's he just, just uses like, them over and these over. These are your and over basic again. bitch, Anna and George. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And I think maybe because propaganda films and, and their fascinating subgenre of, of film and of art, they use filmic tools and, and it, the, the Nazis were quite prophetic in this to vindicate, to create passion, to create a stirring sense of nationality. Yeah. And they use filmic tricks to do that. Yeah. So what bigger fuck you and kind of alluding to the dangers of film even than to start building films where the world is constructed, controlled, and decimated by filmic conventions. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, like, we're talking about this film was in 1997. The remake came out in 2007. I dare say that most films in existence are in some way or another propaganda films. Yeah. Except films like this that just not only tweak the formula, but tweak it in such a way that you're questioning what the formula even is. It makes you notice. And I think Funny Games, like, it's really lumped in with the kind of hyper-glamorized violence of the early to mid-90s with films like Reservoir Dogs, Mm -hmm. Pulp Fiction, uh, Natural Born Killers. Those films, good, bad, or indifferent, they actually do glamorize violence quite a bit. Oh, yeah. And uh, it's sexy, it's different, it's edgy, it's cool. Or rock stars. Yeah. And you want to be those people. So how confrontational is it to watch a film where you can actually kind of see the mechanics of it? Mm-hmm. Like for me, I, I think the most interesting part of Funny Games is when Georg is asking, um, you know, stop, why are you doing this? Stop, stop. And he's like, we're not at feature length yet. Yeah. It's such a, um, I, I think I like that one the best because it's ingrained into the film. It's not uh-huh. a breaking of the fourth wall. No. And if someone actually said that to you, like, how fucked up would you be? Yeah, seriously. Yeah. Well, let's get into these mechanics that we're talking about. We're discussing these mechanics, but it's the kind of thing that they're socialized into us, and we take them for granted unless someone points out otherwise, which this film very much does. This film is really interesting to me because it breaks so many rules we take for granted. There's a lot of nonsense and red herrings in the film. And one line stuck out to me in particular, and it's in the last scene. And it's when Peter and Paul are chatting about, like, astrophysics, Mm. I think. Like, I don't even know. But Paul suddenly declares that fiction that is observed is as real as anything else. And I felt like, out of all the stream of nonsense that came out of them in this film, I was kind of like, "Uh uh-oh. I think that was something, and so I glommed onto it because it brought me back to something called dramaturgical analysis that I learned back in school, and it was one of those things that I learned in, like, intro to Soch that really made me re-examine myself and how I presented myself and how I managed myself. So there's this guy. His name was Irving Goffman, and he's considered by some to be the most influential American sociologist of the 20th century, but fun fact, he's actually Canadian. Anyway, his jam was symbolic interactionism, and that's kind of one of the main big schools of sociology, like Marxist conflict theory. I've talked about um, functionalism in the podcast before. So symbolic interactionism posits that people don't respond to pure objective reality. There is no pure objective reality. They respond to a social understanding of reality. And the fact that anything in the physical world is symbolic or meaningful is something that is created by us through social interaction. So that's his foundation. And in 1956, he published The Presentation of Self in Everyday Life. And basically, he pioneered an approach to studying behavior called dramaturgical analysis, where he uses theater concepts to 
portray the importance of human social interaction. So he believed that, you know, there was a stage, there was a setting, and uh, social actors are, well, actors, he called them actors. And he believed that all social interaction involves one individual attempting to control or guide the impression of the other for a few reasons, like to give the other either a positive impression of them or a negative impression of them, depending on what the context is, and also to avoid embarrassment. You behave differently depending on the other person's interaction with you. And in order for that to work, you need rules. And these rules become so deeply internalized to the point where it's actually like challenging to break them. I feel like this movie was designed to demonstrate the value of symbolic interactionism and depicting how disorienting it is when these rules of social interaction are fucked with. So for example, there's the unspoken rule that Peter and Paul are okay because they were endorsed by Fred. In the beginning of the film, they drive by Fred and Fred said he knew them. They were sons of his friends or something Mm -hmm. like that, right? And there's a tacit endorsement in that, that these people aren't strangers, they're family friends, ergo they're okay. And that is a completely socialized rule that we've come to understand and accept as the norm. And this film is just like, that's complete bullshit. It's unverifiable, unprovable. And we see them utilize that exact same tactic with Anna later. Well, and you get the sense that I think their appearance has a lot to do with it. They're both white, Mm -hmm. seemingly clean cut. They're wearing what I assume are kind of yachting clothes. Yeah, it's all very preppy. Yeah, like that's what I'd imagine someone who has a yacht club membership wearing. Uh uh Um, So they fit in. They they absorb the coating of the area. That's right. They don't look other. No. And they seem pretty intelligent. I mean, they're able to walk the walk and talk. They're articulate enough. And I think Austria is a place where, you know, an accent goes a long way. Like they speak Mm -hmm. well. And at one point, Peter is even going off about, oh, yes, I'm going to study this and this and that. But first, military school. And you get the sense that he's kind of making fun of them. And that's that in and of itself is a convention within the home invasion subgenre, right? Is that we're usually dealing with affluent, upper class-ish people who are just yuppies that we kind of want to see punished in some respect. Well, and maybe this is a good opportunity to talk a little bit about the home invasion subgenre. From everything I can kind of pull together about it, um, home invasion films really kind of came into their own, I I think, around the 1970s um, with something like Last House on the Left, Straw Dogs, Mm -hmm. uh, films of that ilk, those kind of exploitation films, and and they go on and on until you have kind of contemporary ones like The Strangers, and uh, there are some great ones, there are some bad ones, like any subgenre, but I, I think they have a lot to do with the kind of new Hollywood aesthetic, the post- 1960s America kind of on the decline, the Vietnam, Watergate, uh, Nixon era where things weren't that great. Things and weren't that great on the homeland. Yes. The threat was in the home. The threat was in the home. And I don't know if we've ever truly been in a place. And, and I don't think, you know, again, to bring it up, hereditary is an interesting example of the home, but also the family being the source of trauma and horror. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think for the subgenre of home invasion, it's about entering someone else's home. I recently moved. And the first night I was home alone in the house, my boyfriend was at work. Uh, someone knocked on the door. <gasps> and is Tamara home? Oh, <laughs> 
And I was so, I, I just had this moment of like, oh God, it's like my new place. Oh, and um, it was like seven, okay, six okay. or seven. Okay. So it was still kind of light out. I opened the door like a crack. Like I looked through the, uh, the peephole and I didn't recognize the person. And I was like, oh, maybe they're a friend of Danny's. I don't know. So I kind of opened the door a crack and said hello. And they said like, hi is Dante home. Oh my God. Actually? Yeah. And Dante is Andrea's dog, but I do not know any other Dantes. Dante was not there at the time. My boyfriend had never mentioned anyone named Dante, so I was like, no, I'm so sorry. I think you have the wrong place. And he was like, are you sure? Am I I sure? And I was like, yes. And I just very quickly closed the door and locked it. And I was just like, and my heart was racing, (laughs) racing. And it's, it's terrifying. It's terrifying to experience a threat of like a threshold because I know for me my home is my sanctuary it's mm-hmm. a place where I feel safe and I feel good and my cats are there like and so to to feel that threshold about to be crossed mm-hmm. by I, I, I'm assuming a very and the guy never came back he left and nothing nothing like that has ever happened since yeah. but it's always like that's always kind of rummaged around in my head since yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I've been burglarized mm-hmm uh, when I was living in Ottawa, I remember they took my laptop and it was early December and I was an undergrad at the time. So I had to rewrite all my essays and get extensions on them and stuff. And I've also had somebody, um, creep into my bed at night, uh, while he was standing at the foot of my bed. Anyway, I guess what I'm trying to say is I, I've had instances that would kind of shake the sanctity of the home, but I also kind of feel like those experiences are sadly fairly common in inner city living. What's interesting about the home invasion subgenre is more often than not, these are places that even if they're not upper crust people, these are homes that are remote. Mm -hmm. And in my life, we kind of look at a country home or a cottage as something that the rich people have because they can afford to get away. Is while we toil away in the stinkhole that is downtown <laughs> Toronto, they get to get away and and they get to be they get to have the privilege of forty meters between them and their neighbor. And then what the home invasion horror aspect does is it turns that on its head and it makes that a threat, right? Mm-hmm. You can't call for help and have somebody right next door, right next to you. Yeah, and I would absolutely consider Funny Games part of the home invasion subgenre. Sure. And I like the way that it not only kind of takes the elements that Andrea said, the setting in particular, but again, utilizes those relationships. Like these guys have it down to an art. Infiltrate, see your next mark while you're doing the work on the first one, Mm -hmm. and then just keep moving through. They came in the fucking front door. Mm Mm-hmm. With the most benign of requests, and yet they turned that into the most awkward, cringy, invasive conversation where you're just like, something is wrong. And I remember feeling so much pathos for Anna when Georg is like, I don't understand why you're so upset. They asked for some eggs. It seems totally unreasonable. But what that is, is it's putting a big red flag on the intangible aspects of that interaction. The fact that they're being very invasive. The fact that they're being pushy. The fact that they're being rude amidst all this please and thank you. It's really fucked up. And I think when you're in the city and maybe you're upper class, not that I've ever been that, but there's a certain amount of, I assume, respect that you get in the places you visit. Mm. Um, you have those, you know, interactions that are respectful and people say please and thank you and get on with their day or take your order and do whatever. Mm-hmm. So the way they kind of cut Anna down and invade her space and touch things, it's, I, I like, it freaked me out. Yeah. And so I can't imagine if it was someone who was not used to that 
at all. Mm -hmm. It's so micro. And like I was saying, like Irving Goffman learning about the presentation of self when I was a sociology undergrad, I was like, huh, it kind of made me conscious about what it is I'm displaying and what stimuli puts me on the defensive, what stimuli makes me want to present one way or another. And then, of course, when you start I took some women's studies and I start learning about feminism and that is heightened to the 11th degree and you realize the extent to which you are presenting yourself in order to be liked and accepted by really arbitrary standards that are arbitrary, but they're still very, very much felt. And I really think that's the value of stuff like this that exposes that which is unspoken. Mm -hmm. Now, I actually kind of stumbled onto something which I hadn't considered uh, before starting to think about this film and read about this film, which is the philosophy of hospitality. There seems to be kind of a, a dialogue going on. Again, I've never studied philosophy, so this is me Googling, reading several articles, watching some videos to kind of disseminate all this stuff. But there's been a really interesting dialogue between two philosophers, one by the name of Anne Dufour-Montel, and the other of a very famous French philosopher, Jacques Derrida. And they're obviously both French with those names. Oh, Derrida. That yeah. brings a post-structuralist really abstract. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, He's, uh, I think he's one of the biggies, okay. let's say. So, um, it, and this is huge conversation. It was absolutely fascinating. I was very angry at myself that I kind of <laughs> stumbled onto this at like 8 p.m. the night before I went to work and then go record the podcast right after work. So oh, I didn't I have quite a lot that. of time to do all the research I wanted to. But if you're interested, there'll be links to stuff in the show notes. And uh, please continue the study and understanding of what hospitality is. Yeah. So Anne Dufour-Montel, one of her things was that for hospitality, there must be at least three people or maybe forces present for it to exist. There has to be a host there has to be a guest, and there has to be witness. Whoa. Right? And this is for hospitality. Hospitality. So, Andrea, you come over to my house, and I say, welcome, Andrea. Uh, here's a glass of wine, and I put out some snacks. Let's sit down and chat. But if it's just the two of us, it's not hospitality. There's an element of hospitality that is performative, ah. and you want it to be seen. And so I would want someone else, like... Uh, another friend, or if one of my cats could speak, which, you know, fingers crossed one day, could go, wow, Alex really thought about what Andrea wanted and how to make her comfortable, and wasn't that great? Wasn't she a great host? Okay. And part of what Dufour Montel gets at is that interaction between two people can be quite trying, traumatizing, Something like that. There's a lot of tension there. Yet another T word between two people who are starting to interact, especially if you don't know the other person. Okay. And there is a threat of violence because you don't know. So like that You're guy innocently coming to my door knocking, thinking someone lived there that he knew there is immediately to me, I felt a threat of violence just because I was on my own and it was a new place and I was a little unsettled. Yeah. And what the physical witness, this other third party, this physical witness, that generally triggers a displacement of violence. Usually it takes away any kind of violent energy and kind of acts as a buffer, let's say. And so when that's not present, not only do you not have the hospitality that can be passed on. Mm -hmm. So it's not like, oh, you just had a nice time. Someone else can say, oh, I saw Alex be a really great host and Andrea had a really great time. That's good hospitality. But then we know there is a social contract between us that if you suddenly reached out and slapped me, 
someone else would be there to be like, and then That's Andrea slapped her. Yeah. And I think if we think about this in the context of funny games, there is not a physical witness within this film. The witness is us, the audience. Yes. And we can do nothing to displace the violence. Yeah. So to get into the other philosopher who I mentioned, Jacques Derrida, he's, he really looked at hospitality as not only the social interaction between people, but as a social construct between the borders of countries. And he viewed it as, you know, the contemporary issues uh, within the hospitality of the European Union. Mm-hmm. And then you can even look at it uh, as North America, so Canada, um, America, Mexico. And when these countries, these unions, these continents are faced with refugee crisis, when we are faced with asylum, how do we react? And we generally react without hospitality. Currently, the U.S., as we record this, is going through some pretty fucking shocking stuff of um, children being taken away from their parents um, as they try to cross the border. And it is fucking horrifying and it's fucking wrong. And so what Derrida was kind of looking at, and he was looking at this, uh, he started writing about this in the 90s. He passed away in 2004. He started terming these things as unconditional and conditional hospitality. So generally, interpersonally, we're expected to have unconditional hospitality. Yeah, it's a so habit. It's a habit. It's something we are conditioned to do as the nice white middle class girls that we are, mm-hmm. let's say. It was middle class ones. I remember those times fondly. (laughs) The conditional hospitality is a construct of the countries that we live in. It is part of law. It is part of governance. It is basically these laws that are enacted and designed to keep out the, again, quote, unquote, undesirables Mm -hmm. out of our lives and how it creates borders, not only for countries, but also interpersonally, and how, you know, people have gone to jail, people with addiction, with trauma, with anything, we are not supposed to enact with each other. If there is someone dealing with mental illness or trauma or something like that, uh, we can call the police to come deal with it. We don't have to deal with it. And so I, I find these notions of conditional and unconditional hospitality really fascinating. And what's interesting about funny games is that Peter and Paul have cracked this code. And it's not a hard code to crack. No. It's not. And I think this film shows the fallacy of what we depend on for our social contracts Mm -hmm. and how tenuous they are, how flimsy they are. Mm -hmm. Cool. That was really cool to pull out at the last minute. Yeah. It's fucking flush ass shit. And, like, it even resonates today in terms of, like, the wingman. Mm. And I remember, like, when I was young and, like, to start dating, you kind of, you went on these group dates Mm -hmm. and you needed that buffer. And you thought it was for your own comfort, but expanded and put in that way, there's a lot more going on. Yeah. Again, and it kind of goes back to um, the Goffman stuff. There Mm -hmm. is constantly a performative element. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, we, we try to look at performative elements as something that we do for us. So, you know, I try to be performative for myself, not for anyone else, not yeah. for like a gender role, not for something like that. You, you're always just trying to get to your best self. Of course, but yeah. when you look at the politics of that, yeah. it is so fucked up and it can be so degrading and so insurmountable that, you know, it's it's hard to watch. And, and you know, having watched Funny Games now... I have to reconcile myself with the person who can be so empathetic to so many things and, and concerned and, and 
do all this stuff in, in most of my life. But then as I was watching this film and, and the scene um, after Peter and Paul leave, and it's a long scene of Anna kind of struggling to get up and wandering mm-hmm. over, that I basically had to sit on my hand so I didn't whip out my phone because I was so bored. Oh, yeah. I was just like, oh, when will this end? And I was just like, oh, it's like a mother suffering and all of these horrible things have happened. So it's fascinating that that was my reaction Mm. because I felt dispassionate about this film. Mm -hmm. But when you break it down like that, it was like, oh, God. It's a really long, it's an uncomfortably long and still cut where the grief is just, you know, washing over her and she kind of makes the decision to survive. And it's one of those things that, again, it was surreal in its reality. Like, I can Mm -hmm. remember, like, moments when you're going through stuff, you're just like, how long have I been sitting on this floor and staring at this wall and Mm -hmm. just experiencing my emotions? And, And to watch that as a spectator in... A Hollywoodish movie is really disorienting because we don't get to see that. And then immediately following that, we see the Georg character just scream in anguish, mm-hmm. which again is something that Hollywood is typically not super comfortable showing us. That's not the super masculine way. That's not like we're talking about braying sobs and it's disorienting to see and it's uncomfortable to see, but we see it. Yeah, I I find it interesting that while the game that Peter and Paul set up is for this family to survive 12 hours, and uh, this the line I mentioned earlier about um, Paul saying, oh, we're not at feature length yet, mm-hmm. it means that the time is flexible within this world, mm-hmm. that they understand that there is something else going on, yeah. uh, and they are outside of it. They'll stretch this here and abbreviate this here and cut this here and they're in control and we're just along for the ride, which is what we signed up for, right? And it's I think that's part of the reason why I feel very indicted. I feel very challenged as a viewer of this movie is because insofar as as Paul is winking at you conspiratorially, you know, like you're you've adopted his point of view and I feel like he's kind of challenging you to be like, You came here to see this. Do you like it? Do yeah. you like it? Like it's very facetious. And I would say, you know, it kind of uh, occurred to me, actually, my way over here, there are quite a few thematic similarities between, in like, Funny Games and Cabin in the Woods. Uh-huh. The way it calls attention to itself and the way that you have to know certain things going into this film to kind of understand it all. And if you don't, it'll call attention to it in a strange way. Mm-hmm. You know, and on one hand, you've got Cabin in the Woods, which is, you know, funny and fun and can be very uplifting in a strangely life-affirming kind of way. And then you have the first moment in this film when they break the fourth wall, and it's that they've killed the dog. Right. That was the first time it happens, isn't it? And that's kind of one of the famous, you know, screenwriting things. Like, you don't kill the dog. Yep. The dog is sacrosanct. You don't kill the kid. Yep. And those are the first two to go. Fuck all that. Yeah, exactly. But that kid gave them a good run for their money, kind of. Shit. Oh, that scene where the kid is in the neighbor's house is so infuriating. It's like you're going to hide on a chair behind that thing and not even pick up your feet. I was, like, screaming at the screen. Yeah, there'd be no child of ours. No. Anyway. Um, do you want to talk about the remake? I think yeah. you and I did. I mean, you saw it first. I hadn't seen it first. I had seen it second, but I was like, okay, well, that was just a carbon copy of the exact same thing. And so I was like, I don't want to watch it again. Yeah. So I did a bit of research and yeah, carbon copy of the same thing. And I skimmed through it. I skimmed through it just to see. And the only difference I could really tell, 
And I don't know if I'm imposing significance on this. Probably, because it's me, but maybe not. <laughs> I'd like to hear what you think. The only significant difference I could tell was a bit more of Naomi Watts' skin. When she is tied up, rather than wearing the undergarment of kind of a nighty mm. that Austrian Anna is wearing. She's kind of in a bra and panties. So you've got midriff. And it's only conspicuous to me because Peter and Paul make it conspicuous and being like, oh, how old do you think she is? No flab. Yeah, she can't be that old, but she had a kid, blah, 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 blah. There's a lot making her body very conspicuous. And I don't know, I, maybe it's just my own personal biases that, oh, I bet the U.S. studios were just like, we got to see a bit more TNA, Heineke. What, well, what's interesting about that is it, it occurred to me, but in almost an opposite way. Really? So when uh, in the original film, when they kind of rip the nighty uh-huh. and exposes um, her chest, which, and she's wearing a bra, mm-hmm. the bra is see-through. It is. It, it, it struck me as a pretty utilitarian bra, though. Like, it is utilitarian, but I always hate those bras that are utilitarian but are see-through. <laughs> Because I'm always like, God damn it. Now I can't wear a sheer top with this. You know, women problems, guys. I feel like they're guys. supposed to be more ventilating. Are they? Oh, I don't like them. No, I don't like them either. Personally, That's no. I'm a cup girl. In any event. But yeah, I thought it was interesting because then I, I also, frankly, did the same thing. I, I haven't seen the uh, remake in years, so I kind of skimmed through it just to make sure it was the shot-for-shot shot remake I'd heard it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I kind of picked up on a couple key scenes, and, and I did watch a bit of one of the scenes where Naomi Watts is tied up, and her bra is opaque. Ah, so you took that as a bit more modest. Yeah, I mean, not totally. I definitely see your point. Um, I just, I, I felt like it was like, oh, we'll show more of Naomi Watts' skin, but Naomi Watts' agent wouldn't let us, you know, show <laughs> or, like, she, see the nips through the sheer boobs. <laughs> and that's where we had that contract negotiation. I don't oh know. Oh, my God. I just had that moment last night, and I was like, all right, <laughs> sure. So Why insignificant. Not? And here we are glomming onto it. Like, what does it mean? <laughs> what does it say? You know, I've just been thinking a lot about bras recently. Is so, right? I don't It's summer. It's hot. It's. I'm, I'm rethinking my bra strategy, okay. guys. Well, that's another episode. That's another episode. But what I will say is, I quite like Tim Roth as an actor. Do you? I do. I'm I'm good with him. I don't dislike him as an actor, but I do have a hard time taking him seriously. I think I really prefer him as a comedic actor. Yes. And so in a role like this where it's just pain. It's pain. And it's interesting that they took someone from the kind of beginnings of the hyperviolent movement in Hollywood. You know, he was the leading, one of the leading roles in Reservoir Dogs and put him in this kind of sniveling nothing man role funny games is interesting on one level but i Mm. I kept thinking about funny games the original i think is very indebted to the american thriller and a lot of the conventions that exist within that and how it subverts them you know the good guys don't get away Mm -hmm. that that's kind of that's the traumatic thing about this film you can put your character through pain but generally they overcome it or they are avenged or something happens and it doesn't happen in either version and i just kept thinking like how much more interesting would this be if it was George Clooney? Oh. Like, imagine seeing George Clooney go through all of that and then just be fucking murdered. Yeah. I think that... They should have taken an all-American pretty boy, now that you mention it. Like, one of those traditional hero-leading men-style guys. Yeah, maybe even someone more likable than George Clooney. And I, I think um, I, that's a challenge and a half. What? Do you like him? I don't like him, but I do find him likable. 
well, that doesn't make sense. I know. <laughs> You're funny gamesing me. Ah. <laughs> um, no, I, I just mean, yeah, someone of that ilk, if they, if they put yeah, someone yeah. in that role, because really uh, the only sense I get of this film for it to exist is to introduce it to a new audience, right. an audience that would be more susceptible to seeing a film with recognizable stars. Yes. Uh, Naomi Watts is really, you know, kind of in her heyday. She's still, she's still a really big actress and a great actress. Yeah. So yeah, you've got her. Tim Roth is like an indie actor. Again, this is an indie film, but what if you'd found that male actor lead and you just like fucking sidelined him and then decimated him? Yeah. How fucked up would that be? And I'm sure there are things like, Issues with content, salaries, negotiations, all of that kind of stuff. Like, sure. I, I'm no doubt in my mind that those things played a rather large part. I need an actor who's willing and daring enough to take on a part in a role like this. And, uh, yeah. Well, it's an interesting point because, I mean, you've heard on this podcast, I've shit all over a lot of remakes, particularly shot-for-shot shot remakes. Mm. And specifically, we talked about Psycho. The most unnecessary remake of all time. We talked about Let Me In versus Let the Right One In, which is pretty much a shot-for-shot shot remake, Americanized. And so here you've got Funny Games, and it's the same filmmaker. It's absolutely shot-for-shot. Shot. But I, I want to give this one a pass because it is such an atmospheric film. It's such a film that you want to kind of lose yourself into that uh, I actually did find that upon the rewatch, keeping up with the cinematography and the subtitles was a little bit challenging, mm. especially since this wasn't my first time watching it. I was kind of like, okay, like I'm noticing asymmetry here, but I'm also reading and I'm trying to make sense of nonsensical dialogue, which is a hell of a lot more work than it is to make sense of sensical dialogue. So I think the performances were good. And in the case of a truly brilliant film, a shot for shot remake isn't the worst thing in the world. Yeah. I, again, I think it's, um, I think it's a film that has a lot of ideas in it. And I actually, for one, wish he'd taken the opportunity to remake his own film. Mm -hmm. Maybe not drastically change it, but find different ways into it. You know, set up a scene differently. Yeah. Shoot that scene differently. After 10 um, years? Like, like play with it a yeah, bit. Have yeah. some fun. It, it's it such feels, a playful conceit. It feels lazy and it feels like there's so many opportunities. It's not that, you know, the original isn't a good film for what it is. It's that, you know, you have the opportunity to try something, you know, a bit new. And, mm. and it pisses me off that he didn't do that. Let's say there's part of the American audience that have only seen the American funny games. Mm -hmm. Would they fucking know the difference? No, but fans of your film do. But it's Haneke, so I'm sure there's some kind of I'm sure there's some kind of weird ideological big picture justification for let's do this. And I'm sure he was like, you know what? I bet one day two girls are gonna have a podcast and we're gonna <laughs> talk about it, and it will just fucking confound them. Boo yeah! You win, Haneke. You win this round. Anyway, I feel like even trying to analyze a film that is so untethered is playing right into his hands. So yeah. he, he won from the very beginning. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, was he always playing a funny game with us? Die! You know, and like, here's here's another little nugget that I'll pull out. And again, I, I acknowledge, I readily acknowledge that we're grasping at straws here because that's what the film is for. That's what the film is daring us to do. So let's fucking do it. <laughs> Most of you know that I acquired a dog last fall. And uh, in the situation with the eggs, in the very, you know, one of the very early scenes where uh, Peter shows up, the dog is trying to play. When dogs play, they have their own, they have their own psychology and they have their own games. And she says something like, oh, he thinks it's a game. 
And it's the first time that Peter says something like, oh, fun and game. And that's kind of, it's a nod at the title, which is perhaps what what gave it enough gravity that made me continue to think about it. And it made me think about how dog games are different from human games and human games are different from other human games. White human games and middle class human games and upper class human games and poor human games. Um, anything there? <laughs> I don't know. I, I kept thinking about the title and, and to me, like I always like to say, so many things are subjective and what is funny is subjective. So whether a game is funny or not, it's dependent on the viewer. That's true. That's true. But there are also rules to humor. There are rules to humor with regard to the sacred and the mundane and Ugh. like... You've been done... on the internet lately? Oh, God. Want to hear a good rape joke? Oh, no. Yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> no one <laughs> wants to hear those. But that's not just like there are there are formulas in place. And when you you see comics kind of try to tweak that formula and, and sometimes they tweak it a little bit and it works really well and then they push it too far. Anyway, all this to say that the term funny and the term games like these are these are loaded, socially constructed terms. Mm-hmm. You know, these these aren't objective realities that we can just talk about They're Like you said. If something is funny, that's up to you. If something is a game, that's because it's fun. Not everybody is having fun in this film, not by a long shot. Not even the viewer, necessarily. But I sure as hell have fun with it. It's playful. It's cheeky. It's experimental and yet still accessible enough that, I don't know, I like it. Yeah, it's one of those films that I'm glad it exists and I'm glad that it has an audience, but... Ultimately, I don't think it's for me, but I'm no. glad that I got the time to go back and, and rewatch it and think about it a bit more. Well, let's leave it at that. Um, I'm eager to hear what all of you think about this film. I I saw coming into recording this episode, there was a little bit of excitement. There was also a little bit of reticence. So I'm eager to hear if we touched on all the things you touched on. I, I feel like this is one of those things where it's kind of a free-for-all. So uh Really interested to hear your interpretations and analyses. Yeah, and as always, like we mentioned earlier in the episode, if there's a big horror film coming out, we're not going to talk about it right away. We do like to give it breathing time, so everyone tweeting at us and Facebooking us, I I see you. We'll get to it. Of course we're going to talk about Hereditary. Of course we are. we got to give it some time. We've got to give it some reception because I'm even hearing from people in my milieu being like, oh, it's being critically panned. Oh, it's being critically celebrated. And the fact that two people are saying that out of two different sides of their mouth means there's more to the story that we have to see play out. So there is some strategy involved. Trust us on this. We'll get there. But in happier news... There are a couple things that are still going on. Uh, we want to remind you guys of T-shirts, Faculty of Horror, Class of 2018. They are still on sale. They will be on sale until September. We've extended it for quite a few months so that hopefully you guys have time to pick one up for yourselves. That's right. And that's artwork by Stacy Ponder, guys. She's like semi-retired. We were so lucky to get her. <laughs> I don't know. Like, do you feel so lucky? Every I time feel I look super at the lucky. Shirt, I'm like, oh, 
It's like a little Picasso. I adore Stacy, so I can't even believe I get to consider her like a friend. Um, partnered with Twisted Tees, mm-hmm. who are making the whole process really easy. The price points are low. The shirts are really nice and soft. And your purchasing of those t-shirts is going to help us do cool things like our live show in Salem coming up. Yeah, again, hopefully you all know we are going back to Salem Horror Fest uh, weekend of October 12th. Friday, October 12th, we're going to be doing our live show on Ty West's The House of the Devil. Saturday, I will be doing a talk on 90s female killers in cinema. I'm going to be doing a lecture on Sunday about hell, and it's based on a chapter that I already did, but I'm going to elaborate on it. I'm going to talk about cinematic depictions of hell, and uh, it's going to be wicked cool in spite of the lack of preparation I have going on at this particular point in time. But Salem Horror Fest is wicked cool regardless of our involvement, but we are going to be there and we would love to meet you. The festival is growing. Last Mm -hmm. year was its first year, and this year already... Elvira's going to be there. Jesus Christ, The right? weekend before us. Yeah. But she's going to be there with um, our friend Ryan Turek yeah. from Blumhouse and Shockwaves. It's really worth making a pilgrimage out there. And I say pilgrimage because everybody wants to go to Salem at some point, right? If you're dying to go there, this is it. This is your opportunity. You'll still have time to do all the Salem-y stuff. It's a little place. It's a, it's a compact little so place. So fun. You can do all of that. And still hang out with us and take advantage of all of Kevin's amazing programming. So pick up your tickets and we'll see you there. And for me, my new book is out. Oh, that. Oh, that. So the 1990s teen horror cycle, Final Girls and a New Hollywood Formula. It's been on pre-order for a few months. It's shipping now. Just gave Andrea her own varied copy. Yes. Yes. I saw my lovely acknowledgement on the front. And you guys need to pick this up, guys, because it's weird to think of at this stage in time. But, like, you know how often we mention Carol Clover in this podcast? And we disagree with her on a lot of things. It's because she was the first. It's because she was the first to kind of tap on something that nobody was really talking about, but everybody had kind of mentally identified. Alex is the first person to give these movies any fucking credit. The horror community has been shitting on this entire (laughs) decade of horror for as long as I've been part of it. So... I have a feeling that this book is going to become canon and you can be a part of it. Stop, but keep going. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it it was a huge passion project for me. It's something that in some many, many ways, I feel like I've been writing since I was seven years old uh, when my dad took me to see Buffy the Vampire Slayer film in the cinema. It's a book very near and dear to my heart. Uh, I know some of you have got it already, and that's amazing. And I hope anyone who's picked it up is enjoying it. We'll put a link to it in the show notes, like at the bottom. Uh, So you can pick it up if you want. But if it's not in your budget, and Lord knows it might not be in mine if I hadn't written it, I do want to say, always consider requesting it at your local library or any book you're interested in. If there are books we mention, you can do that. It's super easy generally. And uh, a lot of the times they'll get it for you. So it, it's a great option. And then more people can read it. But next month. Andrea. I have one more announcement. Oh, you have one more. Never forget I said. It's not even really an announcement. It's kind of a reminder. I think I've talked about the fact that Faculty of Horror has a subreddit. And I... Dip my toes in Reddit every now and then. I actually find the horror subreddit really hostile. 
I find it, like there's an upvoting, downvoting mechanism in Reddit if you're not familiar with it. And I feel like people will post, hey, like there's an all-female anthology XX coming out and it'll just get downvoted into the ground and people will be like, I don't know why it needs to be like this. If you're advocating for equality, you should... No, 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 no. There's a lot of ignoramus neckbeards in that subreddit and it kind of stymies my participation in the medium on a whole. But there is a Faculty of Horror subreddit, and it has a moderator who is a fellow who reached out to me just, I don't have time to fully moderate a discussion, so he offered to do so for me. And to that end, a user has recently expressed kind of disappointment that there isn't more engaging conversation going on there. So to that end, they are working toward having an ongoing conversation that actually meets in real time on Sunday nights. Uh, initially, they were going to use this app called Remote or something, but we couldn't really get it working. So he's working on taking it to Google Hangouts, but there's stuff going on there. And um, I wish I could be more hands-on with it, but I can't. And this is kind of one of those things that, hey, man, if you want to participate in it, just fucking grab the bull by the horns. Do it. Yeah. Interact and, with one uh, of them. Yeah, we're going to keep it a safe space. Yes. So no bullying, no mean downvoting. Oh, no. I will um, fucking we, That's when we will step in <laughs> and we will fuck some shit up. So if you want to chat with one another the way Alex and I chat with each other, maybe check out Reddit. And I believe they're meeting up on Sunday nights, but uh, but don't quote me on that. And, uh, yeah, we will keep you abreast of that. So we'll link this in the show notes. We'll link, um, the subreddit in the show notes. And if you follow us on one of our many other platforms, Twitter, Facebook, once these kind of get up and running, I'll post info or links to them. Yeah. So, um, yeah, we'll, we'll keep you abreast. But just so you know, that's another place to go interact, have conversations and have some fun. Exactly. Now we can talk about next episode. Now we can talk about next episode. So guys, you know how, like, the last few episodes have been hella depressing? Well, we finally decided to stop doing that. For our July episode, we are, I think, going to have some fun, and we are going to tackle horror comedies. Oh, I'm going to have tons of fun with that. Horror comedy is a genre within a genre of itself, and it's something that we haven't tapped into too much, but I think it's the perfect thing to kick off our summer right before our summer hiatus and to that end we are going to be talking about what we do in the shadows and young frankenstein i'm pumped most of you must have seen one if not both of these one of them is kind of uh no i guess they're both pretty satire spoofy aren't they yeah but in different ways in different ways one of them is like it's the satire spoof you grew up with and i think for many of us within the same generation, you're almost more familiar with those spoofs than you are the real thing because yes. it's more kid-friendly. So it was something you grew up with, but it was still congruent with the mythology of these monsters. So there's a lot to talk about. Yeah. And I think it'll be a fun episode. Lord knows we need it. So yeah, have some fun this month. Digest funny games and uh, watch some fun movies. Watch some fun, nice movies. Yes. Yes. And until next time. Office hours are closed.
strange world desire. 